I'm Julian G. Simmons, and this is Our Gen Pod. Welcome, everyone, and to those of you who are new to our podcast, we hope this is the start of a lasting relationship. This podcast is about sharing, caring, and communicating. It's a conversation about issues and topics important to the 55-plus audience, like us. As part of our series on the state of civility in America, we're talking with our friend Dr. Shepard Siegel, author of two fascinating books on disruptive play and the character of the trickster. We had so much fun we had to split the episode in half. Today, we bring you part two, delving into Shep's newest book, Tricking Power into Performing Acts of Love. In part one, we talked about how play evolves from the innocent frolicking of toddlers into something far more serious as we grow up, and we're taught to play games with rigid rules. Shep calls that cultural play, where the goal is no longer just to have fun, but to win. At its worst, cultural play can get downright nasty, and the ugliest form of all is war. Finally, Shep introduced us to what he calls disruptive play, when characters called tricksters break the rules and shake things up. He admits those tricks might seem a little bit rude, but he says sometimes that's called for when society gets out of hand and civility starts to break down, like today. Shep teaches us how the trickster and disruptive play can lead to positive change in civil society. We pick up the conversation as Shep talks about the character of the trickster and why we need him now more than ever. If you haven't heard part one, you may want to listen to that before starting this episode. It's a lot to take in, but it's also a lot of fun. Here's part two of my conversation with Dr. Shepard Siegel. You've written two books. The One is Disruptive Play, The Trickster in Politics and Culture, and your more recent book, Tricking Power into Performing Acts of Love. We really didn't get a chance to talk about your, your second book that much, and it would be great if we could talk about tricksterism and disruptive play. I'm putting the two together, and you can separate them if mm -hmm. you want. Um, no, no, that's good. When I first heard of your book and the word trickster, which, you know, I haven't really thought about much through life, but obviously I knew it because of way back to when I was a kid and Bugs Bunny. <laughs> What's up, Doc? <laughs> I would like to talk about the trickster because for some people, they may be going, I don't really get it. Yeah. Can you tell us in a few words who or what is a trickster? Sure. Trickster is an archetype in the Jungian sense of the word. So you have the the mother, the hero, the warrior, the caretaker, the magician, and the trickster is one of those archetypes. Everybody is a conglomerate of all the different archetypes out there. Everybody's got some of it in them. Lowercase t trickster is a human being 
and an uppercase T would be a fictional character or a god or a folklore character, like the great American trickster Bugs Bunny. Ready for your close-up? Oh my! <laughs> the, the premise of the book, of both books really, is that if you get a grown-up who has retained the ability to be playful as they were as a very young child, I mean very young, before the age of three, as a grown-up, consciously or unconsciously, they are going to engage with the trickster. But not everyone who plays tricks is a trickster. So I profile individual people in the books because that helps readers get a hold of what I'm saying. Right. The Marx Brothers, for example. You've got the brain of a four-year-old boy, and I bet he was glad to get rid of it. Another great contemporary example is uh, Sasha Baron Cohen. Absolutely. Yeah, who is able to find humor in what are otherwise very serious situations. My name is Borat. I come from Kazakhstan. Can I say uh, first, we support your war of terror. <laughs> to show our friendship, I now will sing our Kazakh national anthem to the tune of your national anthem. Listen. <laughs> Kazakhstan is the greatest country in the world. All of the countries are run by little girls. All the tricksters basically just want to have fun, and fun is what, what we're about here, that we hope the world is about eventually. Tricksters are utopian, ultimately. Helping people imagine a better world by being a little bit rude to someone who perhaps deserves it. Um, this is one of the interesting paradoxes of tricksters. They are both saviors and liars. So when John Lennon and Yoko Ono take out a billboard that says, War is over. That's disruptive play. They're saying, let's be, let's have a peaceful world. Let's have a playful world when they know darn well it's not. But they are disrupting the war by declaring it over before it actually is. Right. Abby Hoffman was a, a peak performer of disruptive play. And I love telling the story of how he and a certain number of demonstrators levitated the Pentagon 300 feet off the ground. Right. Um, yes. <laughs> there's no proof that it didn't happen. Right. And some of my heroes who embodied the trickster are the yes men. So the yes men have an agenda of liberation, but they continue to pull pranks and tricksterish things. ExxonMobil is earmarking $8.6 billion to finance wetlands rebuilding. Well, joining us live from Paris now is Jude Finisterra. He's a spokesman for Dow Chemicals. Today, I'm very happy to announce that for the first time, Dow is accepting full responsibility for the Bhopal catastrophe. This interview was inaccurate. The hoax was an elaborate one. The prank knocked 3% of Dow shares. Well, I wouldn't say it's a hoax. It's an honest representation of what Dow should be doing. That's disruptive play. Right, yeah. So do you think that it was our generation that really fully embraced the idea of disruptive play more than, I mean, I know there was some, I know there was disruptive play before that, but in a more mainstream way. Yes. You can read things about how Dr. Spock's book influenced the way our parents raised us and 
Also, the economy was really good through the 60s on into the early 70s. And we did have the luxury and the privilege with Dr. Spock rooting us on of holding on to that concept of childhood and what was beautiful about it. And obviously, it didn't always work out. It can be misunderstood, which is why I think that my work and my books have value because I'm trying to give childlikeness, which I distinguish from immaturity or childishness, I want to give childlikeness its its due and the idea of being an adult who's able to be playful. In reading your books, I, I learned something new that I didn't know before, and that was it, it wasn't until a few centuries ago that children actually even had a childhood. Right. And And basically, that really didn't fully start developing itself until like baby boomers, right? Right. They were just warm, wet insurance policies so that someone would take (laughs) care of you when you got old. Yeah. (laughs) And in my new book, let me, before you go on, can you tell us the difference between childlikeness and childishness? Let, you know, just so our listeners are clear on what you mean Uh, by that. Well, it's the way the Buddha has been described. And that's uh, someone who's gained great respect for many years around the world that the buddha had a childlike quality there's the zen concept of always being a beginner beginner's mind and that is something that the child has and there is that ability to be playful childishness i think is uh i think of words like pettiness i think of words like vengefulness uh things the the less attractive emotions that might be part of when a child is growing up and goes through difficulty and if you haven't learned how to properly sublimate to use a freudian term those emotions you can become a childish person uh, the jealous husband who eventually becomes abusive and and violent the the politician who tells lies about their opponents and seeks disgrace. That's childish. So childlikeness is like the Taoist philosophy Mm -hmm. to become a child once more. It's that Taoist way of looking at things, correct? It is. And I think through my books, it's a Western way of getting there with Western examples that I should hope people will relate to. Yeah, absolutely. Well, obviously, they'll relate to that probably more than they will to Taoist thinking. Yeah. But I did want to say in the new book, Tricking Power into Performing Acts of Love, there's some interesting things that I borrowed, mainly from the San Francisco folks at Research, is the the name of their endeavor, their publishing house, R-E slash search. And they talk about pranks. And what I'd love to get into with you is the magic of pranks and the playfulness of pranks. Absolutely. And there's all different kinds of, of pranks. Like I was just talking with Rob the other day that I came across just by chance something online about the Bread and Puppet Theater. Do you remember them? God, it sure rings a bell. They're a group that still exists in Vermont right now, but they became very, very well known during the anti-war years. And they would create these, I mean, tremendous masks and characters that were like 
12 feet tall. I mean, just enormous. You have to look them up. But it was all political theater. Mm -hmm. So they would make these amazing statements without really saying anything. I mean, you know, verbally. And they became, at least in the East where I'm from, they were, they were tremendously popular through those days with their statements. And to me, it kind of was a subtle kind of pranksterism, but also it had this ability to lure people in because these, these puppets were just phenomenal and huge. And they would draw people in from wherever they were out because they'd go, be going down the street. And mm -hmm. uh, they weren't like in a theater setting. They were just out there in the world. You talked about the 60s in relation to when you were in high school in, I guess, Palo Alto, correct? Right. Talk, talk right. about your, you know, you, you, you spent some time on that in the book. And let's talk about that a little bit. Tell us, tell our audience about your experience in the 60s. <laughs> Well, sure. Or was it 70s? 70s. <laughs> well, sure. And, and of course, um, it's somewhat amazing given that I'm only 35 years old. But... <laughs> yes, that's what I was wondering <laughs> looking at you. Okay. But trickster, Trickster's time travel. So, you know, I traveled back there and I was very uh, fortunate that my father got a new job. He was a general contractor and got a new job in the Bay Area and moved us from Chicago in 1962. I, was, I really was quite young, uh, but was there for the 60s to experience all the exciting and wonderful things that happened in the Bay Area. And to connect it to the Bread and Puppet Theater that you just talked about, the San Francisco meme troupe came to mind when you said that. And they were this wonderful guerrilla theater. Guerrilla theater is a really great example of disruptive play. And, and then there was the Chicano version, uh, Teatro Campesino, which was a, a sibling to the San Francisco meme troupe who would do very uh, political theater, would attend demonstrations, would lure people in, as you said, and, and, and with the magic of their acting ability, their costumes, their plots, and their scripts. So that was something that really inspired me to the point that when I was in college, I joined a little guerrilla theater group with people I still knew from high school, in fact. And I do remember that one play we did where I, I was a hippie to the, at the point that I had very, very long blonde hair. So I got to play Trisha Nixon in a satirical play that we did. I'm sorry, I laughed and at that one. Trisha Nixon. Certainly a, a high point of, of my youth. And uh, um, our high school, uh, Palo Alto High School, was very active during the Vietnam War with the anti-war movement. And that's really, I owe it to them. That's how I was introduced to Dada uh, through some of the um, more radical students and, and so, you know how there's high school rivalries, and it's usually be from one the football teams that are rivals, you know, uh, from one high school to another. So there were three high schools in Palo Alto, but the other one that had deep roots was not as new a high school was Coverly. And so the, the, the radicals at Coverly were organized along um, Marxist-Leninist lines, and they had a central committee, and they had a hierarchy. Um, there was a professor, Bruce Franklin, from Stanford University, who was kind of uh, coaching them on running a good communist left-wing anti-war approach. And our high school was, uh, we were the pranksters. We were anarchists. We were Dadaists. 
and we took uh, we took that approach. So we were more influenced by you know John Lennon than Vladimir Lennon or Groucho Marx and Karl Marx to steal something from a Firesign Theater. And we pulled various pranks. We we did actually shut the high school down three times through our um, anti-war demonstrations. You know, see, tricksters aren't always civil. And um, I did get on the back of a motorcycle once, and we made a pass at the uh, <laughs> principal, and um, uh, I threw a water balloon at him. <laughs> and uh, so uh, there was kind of this anti-authoritarian thing. But, you know, one of the other things that we did was also anti-authoritarian is we got rid of the student government, and we created a town hall government where everything would be done in a pure democratic way that the whole student body or whoever would come to the town hall meetings would vote. And we gave the, the custodians, the janitors a, a vote and, and the principal got one vote, you know, and so we, we tried to take over the school that way. And uh, there were various pranks, but um, I have to check the statute of limitations before I tell you any more. <laughs> no, no, no. But it brings up a number of interesting things. One is the question of when is it okay to be uncivil when you're dealing with civil issues? For example, ACT UP, which is not as far back as the 70s, more in the 80s and 90s, but ACT UP was a group of AIDS activists that brought attention to the plight of gay men suffering from AIDS because Reagan certainly wasn't doing it. And I was not personally myself involved in ACT UP, but I was a huge supporter of the things they did because my brother had AIDS and died from it. And I was very, very affected by what was going on. And they would do things that were really in your face, that were very disruptive, that were very, people would say, completely uncivil, but there was a point to it. Yeah. There was a point to show that with ACT UP, the idea of doing something so appalling to some people was to bring attention to something that was wrong in our society. And that was a group of people who were being ignored mm -hmm. and who desperately needed attention as far as right. I'm concerned. So how do we as a people say, yeah, that's okay, when we're always talking about being civil. So Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And AIDS certainly spoiled the party, didn't they? So let's talk about what was happening in the gay rights movement before AIDS. And once again, being in the Bay Area and being around the Castro Street culture, you know, you had Stonewall in New York, as a moment that in yeah. a way birthed the movement. But what I recall most is seeing the party atmosphere in San Francisco and a lot of gays moving there because it was safe. And in that safety, there was a ton of playfulness and these amazing parades and people dressing up and people feeling safe to be very, very, very playful. So I would hypothesize that they went through the trickster cycle of engaging with the trickster. And then when AIDS hit, it all got very serious and unplayful all of a sudden. So many people were dying. It was so tragic. Yet then you get ACT UP, which still had a remnant of that playfulness and turned it into pranks, or if not pranks, what you called in-your-face 
political actions, guerrilla theater actions. And I'd, I'd love you to give some examples. For example, ACT UP at one point created this giant, <laughs> this giant condom and they put it on Jesse Helms' house and <laughs> talk about the double entendre, you know, the whole idea of, well, you're, you're bringing sex out for everybody to see when you put this condo there. But at the same time, they're saying, we need protection. You know, that was the message sure. of it. It's like, protect us. Right. That was the symbolism of yeah, it. Yeah, which is, is mm -hmm. quite wonderful. I want to ask you, going back to the levitating the Pentagon thing, which I, I think is wonderful, but it made me wonder about false news or what our ex-president called fake news all the time. But the truth is being twisted around so that it doesn't look true anymore. And it's it's actually been very clever in how that has influenced millions of people. So in the idea of tricksterism and disruptive play and how tricksters have used things that are lies or not true, and they've played with them, uh, or they've taken truths and played with them, where does... In, in its purest form, where does tricksterism fit in to this world that we're in right now? Yeah, you know, this is a, you're asking a question that I am still pondering because the, uh, the more playful aspect of fake news, you know, the Yes Men put out this paper during the George W. Bush uh, thing. They did a fake New York Times and which, you know, the minimum wage was raised and the war in Iraq was over and all this good, good news. And it was a prank. It was a joke. And people could realize that it was. But much like the Yoko Ono, John Lennon billboard war is over, it was that same spirit of just imagine, just imagine these good things happening. So I think that's part of my answer. But I I struggle with this a lot because there is so much propaganda, let's call it that, and fake news that is harmful. I was on an online celebration of the 20th anniversary of the, the research book, Pranks. This is an amazing collection, and it, it's an amazing book. You can see how much I've referred to it. And it was an online celebration of its 20th anniversary, and some of the people featured in that book were in this online. And I asked this very same question you just asked me. How can you, how can you use fake news as a consciousness-raising prank when fake news is being used for so many things that are demeaning what we're about and what we need to do politically? And the answer I got was that the true trickster has a pure heart. And that if you, if you do your pranks with a pure heart, you will get the better outcome. Do you think that cuts it? Uh, I think it's a start. <laughs> it did at the moment, but yes, there's much more to be contemplated and thought about in this. You're asking a great question, and I have yet to really find a great answer for you. Okay. Although, so although there, there, there is a place, I mean, there is a place for the trickster. And I would just refer to the Yes Men. People look up the Yes Men. Um, they're amazing. And they do something called the Trickster Academy. And pay attention to what Sasha Baron Cohen has to offer.
In your second book, there's some fascinating characters, the stories like Lord Buckley, who I was, um, after reading your book, I had to go online and, and watch some video clips, the ones I could find on Lord Buckley, because I just- Oh, good for you. I, I didn't know about him, and I thought it was fascinating. The most famous person to have never become famous. Right. I mean, and just, you can just tell how smart this guy was, and who lived this chaotic life. And that's always a sign of genius to me. Genius and madness are very close together. Mm. I was thinking about when I was still doing PR and marketing, a few of us came up with this idea of doing this event at the Roxy. And we got Robin Williams to MC the, oh. the event. Oh my and, God. Um, oh my God. And I just bring him up because you talk about him being a trickster, Andy Kaufman, all those. I didn't spend a lot of time talking to him, but I just remember backstage this energy emanating from him, this like almost insanity coming from him. You could sense his his whole thought process happening and how he worked his energy yeah. up to make something special happen. And he was in this flow. That's exactly that word is so perfect because he was in there. And he was in there by himself and yeah. he had he was so in touch with it mm -hmm. well being playful too. amazingly I mean, playful just, yeah just um silly playful yeah i yeah. mean he couldn't help himself yeah yeah the day robin williams uh, i had a job and the day robin williams died was the day i decided to quit my job and write these books so uh, he was that kind of an inspiration, and it was that kind of a blow when 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 he died, and that was it. And I said, "Okay, I, I've got to I've got to be true to this original calling that came to me at a very early age." I'm thinking about another young man, Alfred Jarry, who was an enfant terrible in France and way ahead of his time, and he invented Dada. 20 mm. years before it actually happened. Mm -hmm. And 15 years old, he had a, a terrible, terrible teacher in his school, his physics teacher. And so he created a puppet show that mocked his physics teacher. And he translated the uh, physics teacher into the king of Poland. And he wrote the... the Oh my God, okay. He, he wrote the Ubu plays, which are considered a masterpiece of absurdist. I might add, he wrote these when he was 15 years old. Wow. And they're absolutely famous. The King of Poland was a merciless murderer. He did terrible, terrible things. Yeah. And, and, so, and so he is kind of, made, kind of represented the dark side of, uh, of a trickster type. And it's really interesting because... Uh, one of my uh, favorite movies, and a movie that I uh, do a little analysis of in the in the new book, is uh, Being John Malkovich, and mm. uh, the opening scenes of Being John Malkovich um, pay homage to Alfred Jarry and the Ubu plays with this marionette dance that John Cusack uh, performs in his character. But it's I think it's Catherine Keener. Mm -hmm. who is somewhat villainous in the movie, but she is a wonderful example of a female trickster. And her acting is phenomenal. And she is like a modern-day Ubu, Ubu being the king of Poland. I'll have to look at that movie again. I haven't seen it in a long time. You know, 
my theory is that as we become more playful, it's inevitable that the trickster is going to show up and you're going to play some tricks. And the tricks are not intended to be mean ever, but they might be a little bit rude. May not be the best note to end on, but tricksters really love fart jokes. You know, I mean, it's a big deal. And the trickster character in Bavaria is Till Eulenspiegel. And Till Eulenspiegel is a champion against authority and against income inequality. But he's really into scatology, too. Um, you know, I mean, and this is, hey, don't kill the I'm messenger. Sorry. This is deep into B it, <laughs> Bavarian. You know, I... I have to throw something in. Do you know, have you ever heard of lepetamine? I have not. Okay, well, you have to read up on lepetamine. I, I had this friend, Bill Harris, who was a film critic for uh, Showtime, who unfortunately has passed away in the last few years. But he said, oh, I have this <laughs> book you have to read. And it was this paperback book, and it was about this real-life character named lepetamine who would actually give... He had a way of being able to play music with his farts. <laughs> so he would give these big concerts in Paris where he would do a whole farting concert. Signore, signori, ho il piacere di presentarvi uno spettacolo di petomania. Scusate, mi schiarisco un attimo la voce. Ecco fatto un po' di velocidine. And I thought, oh my God. <laughs> I mean, and. Well, that, you know. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, that's just perfect because, as I was saying, Till Eulenspiegel is, is, is deeply embedded in uh, Bavarian folklore. So, not just Germany, but uh, Switzerland and, and other parts of that region to the point where Johann Strauss wrote a symphonic poem called Till Eulenspiegel, and there is one part in it where a French horn, and this is a respected part of the classical repertoire where the French horn does what is clearly a fart sound. Um, so <clears throat> you might not consider that civil, but it's the kind of playful prankishness that a civil society has room to appreciate. Coming back to civility again, I think that, that our society now is so off kilter. I'm trying to figure out, we're trying to figure out here how things have gotten so out of hand, how there's this pandemic of incivility that is going around and it affects every aspect of life from the most basic to the most complex, which is one of the things we're learning here. When we talk about our values or whatever's left of them from our youth. I mean, when I think about nature and society now, when I was a kid, I used to take classes. My brother and I used to take classes at the Museum of Science in Buffalo every Saturday. We took everything from ornithology to Egyptology. And in summer, we went to nature camp. So I learned a lot about nature and I'm so happy that I did because it's given me tremendous respect for it, but not just respect, perspective. And I think that our society has lost perspective on where we fit into the grand scheme of things. Right. 
I think I haven't quite figured it all out in my head, but I think that's one of the reasons that we are are so off kilter now is that we have just lost perspective. Julian, I, I think that the historical moment we're in right now, as dire as it is between the environment and war and income inequality and all the isms that we're challenging, I think it's a good time to talk about utopia. Tricksters are utopian, ultimately. That really is a, a big part of what I'm about. I'm a utopian, and so I tend to talk about the political, uh, social vision that I'd like to see us get to. If we were playful more often, it's a component of what it takes for human beings to become a better animal, so to speak. Um, I think playfulness is, is nutritional, is socially nutritional. And we're going to get there. It's interesting. We were watching Ken Burns' Ben Franklin documentary and mm. the Declaration of Independence is the idea of the pursuit of happiness. And I think that we have forgotten that mm -hmm. along the line, what it means to be happy. Mm -hmm. But I mm -hmm. also think there's also a difference between pursuing happiness and living a, a fulfilling life. And I was reading something recently about it where happiness is more surface and and a fulfilling life is accepting that life has its ups and downs and that things aren't always perfect right but that people who pursue a fulfilling life are actually happier than people who pursue happiness if that makes sense oh yeah i, I like that yeah and you you get your you know eventually you figure out their cycles and you got your ups and your downs and hopefully neither of them get out of hand. I think that's called um, manic depressive, right? Right. Or bipolar. Yeah. I wanted to ask you something you say at the end of your book. You said American society is currently in a liminal state. And I found that to be such an incredibly accurate summation of where we are at this moment in time. If you could just define what liminal is for oh, yeah. the audience uh, in case they're not familiar with the term. Sure. And this is my layman's understanding of it, but it's, an, it's a term that um, is used a lot in anthropology. And it, it, what it means is that a, a person or a culture or a society are in a, in a moment of transition and they're leaving one stage and they're, they haven't yet entered the next stage. So, Adolescence itself is a great example of liminality. Well, I, I'm still in touch with being a kid, but I'm looking to be a grown-up. And I worked with teenagers a lot, but I'm not. They won't treat me like a grown-up yet. And it's a volatile time. And it's volatile. Anything can happen to a person, and anything can happen in a society, and everything in between. So when I used to train other teachers and work with adolescence, I would describe it as a, a river. And on one side of the river is your childhood, and on the other side is grown-upness or adulthood, if you like. And you got to swim that river on your own, and we can coach you, and we can teach you, and we can give you advice. But you've got to swim that river of liminality on your own, and it can be dangerous. There can be rapids. There can be things happen to kids in their adolescence, and some of them, you know, the point where they have fatal accidents um, and so forth. So that's liminality in a, in, in, a, in a very human sense of a human individual. And I think as society goes, I don't think it's too much of a stretch 
to say that most of us in this country anyway, I can't speak for other countries, but most of us are trying to figure out where the heck we are headed, mm. uh, which would be just my way of describing the liminality of, of the moment. And my two cents are in those books. Well, it, exactly. And I, but I, I just, I was so impressed by what you said there at the end about yeah. being in this liminal place because you don't hear a lot about it. I think everybody knows it's there and that the stress it's creating in, in itself creates incivility. Yeah. Because fear can create incivility. Right. Anger can create incivility and all of that. But I want to thank you for being with us. I, I really, really enjoyed talking with you. Likewise. I, and I hope that you'll come back and visit us again. Where can people buy your books? Well, um, hopefully the link is, is, is there on your page and the soft cover, which I recommend because I have illustrations in the book and pictures of people you're going to fall in love with. And so that makes the paper version uh, something you're going to want to have. And I recommend indie books, support independent booksellers or, or bookshop.org. And you enter your zip code and that'll tell you where the nearest independent bookstore is that carries your book. But Barnes & Noble and Amazon will also have it. Great. Hopefully. I really hope you'll have me back. I really would love to continue well, this Well, you can't go yet, so just just hold on. Not so fast, buckaroo. So, all right. Well, edit, edit this to the end. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> got one more thing. I just want to say one last thing in su support of your podcast and the fact that you guys are taking on civility that in a historic moment and a liminal moment that has allowed rampant uncivility to take over so much, I think what you're bringing to the conversation is important. And just as importantly, I think what you're bringing to the conversation will be fresh and that you are finding ways and finding people to come on to talk about civility is something that is going to be fresh because we're swimming in so much of its opposite. And people will hear this, and hopefully it will stimulate a movement to create civil spaces in our society. Well, that's wonderful. And what you're saying is exactly what we're trying to do, is to bring fresh perspective on the issue of civility and hopefully get people to think about it in ways they haven't thought about it, and, and hopefully not just in an us or them way. Mm -hmm. We're in this together. We have to figure it out right together. Thank you, Thank you so much, Shepard Siegel. Should I say doctor or? You can. Yeah. Dr. Shepard Siegel. Thank you so much. Okay. <laughs> it's been wonderful. It has. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Have a great day. Okay. <laughs> Says. Don't take life too seriously. You'll never get out of it alive. <laughs> yes, we did get a little silly in this episode. Sorry about those fart jokes to anyone who was offended. But isn't that all part of connecting with that childlike sense of play once again? We certainly could use that right now. Some of you may be wondering what all this has to do with the state of civility. Things are definitely getting worse in that department. 
Some say we're headed for a civil war. But I can't really think of a better example than President Zelensky, the courageous leader of Ukraine, who came to that role from a career as a comedian. The darker things get, the more we need that trickster spirit. I suppose it depends on where you sit, but I agree with Shep that it's a good time to focus our sights on a better world, a more civil society, and a bit of disruptive play might just help us get there. As I said, this podcast is a conversation, and I'm sure many of you have some thoughts after listening to Shep. We want to hear what you think. There's a new cool app on our website, rgenpod.com. Just look for the little yellow circle with the microphone at the bottom of the page. Click on that and it takes you to the app where you can record a voice message that goes straight to our mailbox. Don't worry about how you sound. You can always delete and try again, and we'll edit out the stumbles anyway. Rob does that for all our episodes, and I do appreciate his hard work. You probably noticed we've been slow to get these episodes out lately. We have been busy. We have some great interviews in the pipeline, and we're working hard to pick up the pace and bring them to you. But the truth is, we're struggling, and we need your help. You can help us by doing these things. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That way we know you're actually interested in what we're doing. Like us and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. The more stars and likes we get, the more new listeners are likely to discover the podcast. Share the podcast with your friends and family. The more people who do so, the easier it is for us to seek and obtain funding for our podcast. Support us with a financial donation of any size. You can do this on our website at www.ourgenpod.com and look for the donate link. Send us your comments and ideas. Try out that new voice app. And finally, join our mailing list. I want to thank Bill Aldrich for composing and performing our wonderful theme music. And Rob Wilson, our director and co-producer, for his incredible talents and his tireless dedication in getting each episode ready. Thank you both. And here's a comment on civility from our own Bill Aldrich that we want to share with you. Hi, my name is Bill. I live in Boston. And I had a thought today. Remember when people dressed nicely? When men and women went out, they would dress nicely. Those things seem silly now. But there was an unspoken respect, I think, to others in that. Perhaps civility started waning when casual day happened. So now people have no concern whatsoever what they wear or when. It seems to me that we don't care and don't want to care which I wonder may reverberate into other social aspects. That is my thought. I'm Julian G. Simmons. Thanks for listening. Unless otherwise noted, all content in this podcast is copyright unauthorized films. This podcast includes copyrighted material, which has not always been specifically authorized by the copyright owner.
This content is used only where it is the specific subject of commentary by us and our guests as part of our effort to advance understanding of issues of social and historical significance. We believe that this constitutes a fair use of the material in accordance with the Fair Use Section of U.S. Copyright Law Section 107, which reads, the fair use of a copyrighted work for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, or research is not an infringement of copyright. Further information on this claim of fair use may be found on our website at rgenpod.com.